Uh, if you were here last Sunday, uh, we, you, you remember that we were talking about how all of the Bible, all of Scripture, um, and really all of human history is part of one big story that God is telling. And in order to understand why we are the way we are, in order to understand why the world around us is the way that it is, we've got to remember what's happened in the story so far. This goes along with kind of what we were talking about in the, uh, the Gospel Project for Adults class this morning. But um, we have to start at the beginning. The, the first human being that God ever made was a man named Adam. And Adam lived in the most beautiful garden imaginable. And God told him this. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, eventually we, uh, we know that Adam and his wife Eve gave in to this temptation, and they both knowingly disobeyed the Lord, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because God is just, and because he is deserving of our obedience and our worship, he punished Adam and Eve and all of their offspring, which includes you and me. And God punished humanity with, with death, like he said he would, with now a hostile relationship between humanity and God, and with enslavement to sin. In other words, God made us slaves to the very thing we said we wanted instead of him. And as a result, sin entered the beautiful humanity that God had made, and it, and it warped every part of what it means to be human. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our physical bodies, our minds, our souls, all of these parts of our humanity, which once had been pure and free, were now warped because they were enslaved to sin. And this is why we people no longer have a natural desire for God and a natural desire to be holy like God. Uh, this, is, this is why we are born with an overwhelming desire for this place, for the things of this world, and for sin. And our, we're, we're slaves to it. We're, we're, our enslavement to sin is why each and every one of us is naturally selfish. We don't have to work hard at that, right? We're naturally prideful. Our enslavement to sin is, is why we break God's law, why we commit murder in our own hearts by hating one another, why some people take pride in being good at keeping grudges. Our, our enslavement to sin is why our minds and our bodies and our relationships break apart. Our, our enslavement to sin is why we are blind to the glory of God now in our natural state. It's why we think that we are actually good and that God isn't and that anybody who tells us we aren't good should just go to hell. Our enslavement to sin is why we do not believe we need Jesus. That's why we don't believe we really need him to rescue us and to rescue others from sin and Satan. But God, in his grace, this is the story, so we keep moving forward, in his love for us, despite our foolishness, and in his love for the glory of his own name, broke in. And he broke into human history to set free from sin everyone who would trust him. 
When Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth a little more than 2,000 years ago, he said that he came to seek and to save everything that had been lost and warped by sin and enslaved to sin. And Jesus came not only to free us from sin, okay, Jesus came to unwarp us. He came to make us born again. That's what it means to be born again. He didn't say, well, I'm going to take the warped product and then I'm going to unwarp it. He said, we're starting over. I'm going to make you born again. With a restored, pure desire for God and for his holiness. And the pinnacle of Jesus' life on earth and the, and the pinnacle of all human history, this is the truth regardless of whether you're a Christian or not. The pinnacle of human history was when Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself to be nailed to a cross outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem to suffer and die for sins he did not commit. And on that cross, Jesus, he says, became our sin in his body. And he, he did that so that he could suffer God's wrath toward us, toward our sin in our place. See, the only way to kill this sin that we're imprisoned to is by imputing it onto God himself and then killing God. And this is what Jesus did for everybody who calls on his name. When Jesus died, he broke our chains to the power of sin. Okay? And whoever trusts in Jesus is no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to Satan. You're no longer a slave to death. You're no longer a slave to hell because Jesus took the punishment for you. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And at the same time that Jesus killed sin for us, he also, he did this, he covered us. He blanketed everyone who trusts in him with the blanket of his own righteousness, the righteousness of God, so that everyone who trusts in Jesus' name is not only forgiven and free, yes, but more than that, you are now spotless and righteous in God's sight because you're covered with his own righteousness. We in Christ are forever blanketed with the perfection of Jesus. And we praise him that Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose in glory from the tomb three days later, confirming all of these new realities for us. He made sure to hang out long enough and hang out with enough people to have hundreds and hundreds of ancient uh, eyewitnesses. And the resurrected Jesus declared that this good news, this gospel, is not a fairy tale. That Jesus was not just a, a merely a, a good man. Jesus was God who took on human flesh. He's God back from the dead who loved us so much that he laid down his own life for us to forever rescue us from sin and Satan and hell and death. I mean, Jesus' death and resurrection, this is... It was like an atomic 
bomb of God's love that erupted in Jerusalem and its shockwave shot out across the world. But instead of, of ruining everything in its path, these gospel shockwaves were restoring and revitalizing broken humanity with the love and vitality of Jesus. And we see this in the book of Acts as the kingdom of God and the message of salvation in Jesus spreads outward from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And God, in his grace, did this for us. He, he first accomplished on that cross what was necessary to save us from sin. And now God, in his grace, is taking that power, the power of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, and he is blowing it onto humanity through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to make humans born again to God so that they can know him and so that they can trust him and so that they can love him the way they were meant to. And this is something we can't do on our own. This is something God in his grace is doing for the glory of his name. And... One of the cool things is, 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 as we've been going through this book of Acts, and as we see these gospel shockwaves crossing the landscape, you see, we've seen all sorts of different types of people in its path and, and have their lives transformed by this gospel. We've seen poor people and rich people. We've seen cowardly people and and dirty people be changed. We've seen social outcasts be changed by the gospel, and religious leaders, and, and widows, and men, and women, and children. We've seen Jews, and half-Jews, and Gentiles, and Africans, and tan-skinned people, and light-skinned people, and dark-skinned people, religious people, and irreligious people. And God's bringing them all into his family for the glory of his name, and for their joy. And this morning, we get to read one of the most remarkable transformations of any human life ever, the transformation of a man named Saul who loved to kill Christians because they were Christians. And as we look closely at Saul's story this morning, we're gonna see that Saul's story is not just about Saul, but it's about the forgiveness and the new life that God gives everyone who turns away from the world and turns to Jesus in faith. So if you got your Bible with you, please open with me to Acts chapter 9. And if you don't know where Acts is, there should be a table of contents in the front of your Bible. It will list its page number. This is God's word breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God. Let's ask God to breathe onto us and to help us now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of scripture we get to read today that you've appointed for, for this day, for us to be here and to hear this good news. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to breathe new life into us. Breathe new faith into us. Breathe new sustenance, new courage, new joy into us. We need you, God. You are the vine, we are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Please protect us from the evil one. And we pray this in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen. 
So we're going to take this a couple of verses at a time. I want to start in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let's, let's wait there. Before we go any further, we, we need to know who we're talking about. Who is Saul? Saul here is not King Saul from the Old Testament. That's a different Saul. This Saul is the same man who we frequently call Paul, right? And I'll probably go back and forth between those names because it's just going to happen. Um, but this Saul was one of the most devout Jewish leaders in the first century. He was extremely smart he was well-educated from a young age. His parents moved to Jerusalem so that he could be mentored by the top Jewish rabbi in Palestine in the first century. He was passionate about Judaism. He was a leader of the people as a Pharisee, and he hated Jesus. He hated him. Saul was glad that Jesus was no longer around. He... he more than that, he wanted to destroy every last reminder of Jesus and every last disciple of Jesus living throughout the Roman Empire. This was his mission. And he was one of the instigators that started in Jerusalem, right? He, he instigated the great persecution in Jerusalem that resulted in Christians either being killed or fleeing, running away from Jerusalem. They went throughout the Roman Empire. And in his own words, this is what Saul tells us later in Acts 26, 9 to 11. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Rage against Christians. This is what Saul was doing here in Acts 9, 1 to 2. And he's breathing murderous threats against Christians everywhere he went in Jerusalem. And now he wants to hunt down the rest of the Christians who ran away from Jerusalem. He's, he wants them to know, you're not getting away. I'm coming for you. And so Saul asked the high priest of the Sanhedrin to give him letters of authority to Damascus, which was way, way, way away. I mean, this is a long ways away, okay? And he said, if, basically, if I find any Christians there or any Christians between here and there, I want to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and we're going to kill them the same way we killed Stephen. So he set his eyes on Damascus, hundreds of miles away. It was a large city in the ancient world, tens of thousands of people. And the Jewish high priest and the Sanhedrin must have said, okay, they give him the authority because... Saul was soon on his way to Damascus. Let's read in verses 3 to 9. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, 
and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Stop there. So, so just, let's picture this. Just as Saul and his friends are approaching Damascus, a light from heaven shone around them. Okay, all of them. And Paul later described this heavenly light as so bright and so blinding, he said it was, it was brighter than the sun. Okay? And you know what that does to your, your eyes once you're staring at the sun for a couple of seconds, right? I don't recommend that, by the way. But this is brighter than the sun. It was so powerful that, that Saul and his companions just immediately fell to the ground. And, and suddenly Saul heard this voice calling out to him in this light, repeating his name, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and when he heard that, Saul's mind, think about that, his mind must have been blown, right? Because Saul knew that this powerful light around him was the glory of the Lord. And, and he knew that the voice he was hearing was the voice of the Lord, but then the Lord asked Saul why he's been persecuting him. And in Saul's mind, he hadn't been persecuting the Lord. He'd been helping the Lord by destroying everybody who was worshiping Jesus instead of the Lord. And so all that Saul could say was, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Jesus puts together the pieces for Saul. The Lord, his Lord, is Jesus. The God of the Jews is Jesus, just like Jesus had said all along. This meant then that, that by persecuting Jesus' followers, Saul had not been serving the Lord, Saul had been persecuting the Lord. Even though the Jews and the Romans had killed Jesus, yes, he died, but Jesus really rose from the grave. That's what this meant. And even though Jesus had ascended to heaven, he could still appear whenever he wanted and to whomever he wanted. And Saul could no longer deny this. He could no longer deny the resurrection of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. And when we read accounts like this in Acts and in the Gospel of John like we've been in, you see that an encounter with the resurrected Christ radically transforms people. And... Saul here had been persecuting Jesus by persecuting Jesus' followers. Remember that, that Jesus had told his disciples, abide in me as I abide in you. Jesus is the head of the body and his followers are the body. He said Jesus, Jesus is the vine and his followers are the branches. So when the Holy Spirit makes us born again through faith in the gospel, he unites us to Jesus, so that now we're hidden in Jesus. We're connected to Jesus, and Jesus is hidden in us. And this is why passages like today's passage, and as we get there, it, it's, uh, they some, in the New Testament, it sometimes refers to Jesus' followers as saints, not because we're so good that we're saintly, but because God is so good and has united us to Jesus through faith. 
We're saints because we're covered by Jesus. And whoever persecutes Jesus' saints persecutes Jesus. That's serious. And that's exactly what Saul had been doing. He, he had hated Jesus with raging fury. He hated his followers. He hated this whole message of the gospel. And guess what? He'd been wrong the whole time. Truth isn't whatever you want it to be. You can think you're following truth your whole life and be passionate about it, and you can be completely wrong. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So what Jesus tells Saul, get up off the ground and go into Damascus and, and wait for further instructions. So Saul obeyed, he got up, but when he looked around, he couldn't see anything. So now he is physically blind. And so his friends then had to lead him by the hand into Damascus. And they ended up going to the house of a man named, um, a Jewish man named Judas, where Paul laid down and he didn't eat anything or drink anything for three days. And while that's going on, meanwhile, Jesus appears to a different man in Damascus, okay? Let's read this, verses 10 to 16. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias, this man was a follower of Jesus. He lived in Damascus too. And, and Jesus appears to Ananias and he tells him, go to Judas's house on Straight Street. Look for this man named Saul of Tarsus who's been blinded and was praying, is praying to the Lord, okay? That uh, shows us the sovereignty of Jesus, the omniscience of Jesus, right? It's not, go into town, yell his name, see if you can find him. Go to, look for the street sign that says Straight Street, okay? Go find Judas's house, go in there. Saul, a man named Saul, yeah, the guy who wants to kill you is in there, and I want you to go in and heal him, okay? This, Jesus, this is Jesus's mission, he is leading this thing. He is orchestrating his mission to make disciples of all nations. And verses 17 to 19a say, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scale, scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Ananias came to Judas' house. He found Saul and he laid his hands on him, not only to heal him physically, 
but also to heal Saul spiritually. And this, think about this, this is an incredibly touching scene. Jesus could have healed Saul physically any way he wanted to heal him. And Jesus could also have granted faith and repentance to Saul any way he wanted to. But Jesus chose to use one of the very men whom Saul came to persecute as the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit would save Saul. And as Ananias put his hand on Saul, immediately something strange physically happened. Something like scales started falling from his eyes. And, and when these scales fell from his eyes, immediately he could see again. And that, at that moment, not only was his physical sight healed, but now his spiritual sight was healed too. Saul was born again. Saul was a believer now in Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. And as, as we've seen many times in Acts, the first step of obedience for a new Christian is to be baptized. In fact, it's fascinating that even though Saul had not had anything to eat or drink for three days, he feels such an urgency to be baptized that he gets baptized first. And then he comes back and gets something to eat and to drink. And the urgency for Christians to get baptized is not because you better do this so you can make sure that you're really saved or so that you stay saved or so that you keep God's approval. That's, that's not it. Baptism is urgent for the Christian because it is the clearest command that Jesus gives to new Christians. Jesus saved you? <laughs> praise, praise him. Now celebrate him. Remember the moment he saved you by being immersed in water to symbolize your immersion into Jesus. That's what baptism is. If Jesus has made you born again through faith, then obey him and be baptized. Verses 19b to 22 say, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Man, can you imagine what it must have been like to be in Damascus when Saul became a Christian? I mean, that would have been fascinating. Verse 19b says that Saul's feelings toward the Christians there changed overnight. The very people he came to arrest and put to death were the people that he now loved. In fact, it says he stayed in Damascus to fellowship with them and to witness to Damascus with them. And immediately, it says, Saul came to the synagogues in Damascus where he had planned to arrest Christians, and now he was proclaiming Jesus to all the people. This is, this is mind-blowing. Saul was a Pharisee, okay? And now he's preaching Jesus is the Son of God. And everybody who heard Paul speak was blown away. It says, isn't this the guy who, who led the persecution against the Christians? Isn't he the guy who came here to kill all of them? There was no natural explanation for Saul's abrupt transformation. 
he had truly encountered the resurrected Jesus and now Saul was a completely changed person. And the more, it says, the more that Paul preached this gospel that he had tried to destroy, his influence grew stronger. And he actually, what happened is very quickly, <coughs> he starts to tick off a lot of people because he wasn't only telling them Jesus was God, but he was actually proving to them from their scripture that he was God. And it's a, it, it is fascinating, this, this word he proves. It's this kind of apologetic engagement. He's proving to them from scripture and from history and from his own personal experience that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the savior the Jews had waited for for thousands of years. <clears throat> In all of human history, Paul's transformation was one of the most dramatic and influential moments we've ever known. Um, not only because of his conversion alone, but because of the subsequent uh, gospel tremors that he would make around the world and which we still feel today. This guy went to write 13 books of the New Testament. That's incredible. I mean, you can apply this passage a lot of different ways, but I'm just going to do two, two ways we can apply it. I mean, I guess the big way I would apply it is we should just be dumbfounded by this and walk away and say, God is awesome. <laughs> Jesus is awesome. Like, if you want an application, there you go. But I'll get to what I wrote. First, Saul's story is your story if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. See, we don't, we don't really know why Jesus blinded Saul on that road to Damascus. But we do know that Saul's physical blindness suddenly symbolized what was going on in here. He was spiritually blind. He'd been blind to the glory of God that had been shining the whole time in the face of Jesus Christ. And he was so confident in himself. Your confidence in what you believe doesn't make it true. You can be confident about a lot of things. Saul was very confident that Jesus was not God. He was so confident in his knowledge of the scriptures. Nobody in this room knew scripture better than Saul. Nobody. <laughs> he was so confident in the traditions of Judaism, but he had been a fool the whole time. And the only reason, so what changed for him? Grace. God's grace, the gift of God to break in and help him even though he didn't deserve help. He, Jesus, broke in to Saul's life and he showed him his glory. And the Holy Spirit gave Saul a new heart of faith and of flesh. If you are a follower of Jesus, man, this is your story too. Because before God gave you faith in Jesus, you, you too were blind to the glory of God in Jesus Christ because you were a slave to sin. Before you or I ever saw our need for Jesus to save us from sin and hell and death, we did not see a need for Jesus. He's a good guy, right? We, maybe we should be like him. Is that the message? No, that's not the message. That's secondary. Primarily, it's like 
You need him to save you. (laughs) Because our minds and our souls and our hearts were enslaved to sin, we were bound to the sinful way of thinking about Jesus. But then God in his grace broke into our lives. He broke us free from sin and he gave us new spiritual eyes to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ for the first time. Jesus was no longer some guy to us who lived 2,000 years ago. He was your savior. He was your God. He's your best friend. You didn't do that for yourself. God did it for you. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you're reading Jesus, uh, Genesis 1, Rob. There's your Christ connection, right? Let, just as God said, let light shine out of darkness, he's shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you can't manufacture faith. You can study, you can apologetically, and that's very good to seek after and to st- Look for the truth. But at the end of the day, you can't make yourself believe in anything. Instead, God mercifully used the gospel of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to show us his irresistible grace. And this is, you guys, this is why we're here this morning. You get it? This is why we're here. To thank God for doing this. To worship him together. I mean, anything subsequent that happens about me, you know, us learning to be more godly is awesome. That's good. But we're primarily, we're first here to worship Jesus for who he is. And he doesn't, this is the thing, again, he saves us, but he also wants to sanctify us. That means he wants to make us like him, okay? So if you're here and you're like, well, I accepted Jesus when I was seven, now what, wait for heaven? No. Jesus is transforming you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He wants to use you here on earth to multiply his glory and to make more disciples of Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why he put you where he put you in at whatever station of life you're in. And we want God to do for others what he's done for us. <laughs> we get to be his ambassadors. That's what Jesus says. You're my ambassadors because I'm in heaven. But you're, you're the troops on the ground now. And I want you to link arms together and go reach this world with the love and gospel of Jesus Christ. If, you, if you're here and, and you have not put your trust in Jesus and asked him to save you from the power of sin over you, then I would say what the apostle Peter said, repent and be baptized. That means turn away from what you think is saving you or can save you and turn to Jesus and trust in him. 
be, you're, you're not on good terms with God. You're not. You can say you think you are. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God thinks. And he says you're an enemy of his in your mind if you're apart from him. And so he's the one who's extended the offer of peace to you. And he says, trust in Jesus. This is the way back. This is how you can be reconciled to me. And I'll make you a son or daughter of mine. And then just like Saul and the rest of Jesus' followers, then be baptized. Be baptized in Jesus for making you born again. And, and celebrate God and his grace over you. What are the words, you guys? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Saul's story is your story if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. And the second encouragement for us is this. Nobody on earth is too lost for God to save them. Ah, thank you, Lord. That's encouraging. And if, if, if ever someone disrespects you or hurts you or slanders you because of your faith in Jesus, just remember that's exactly how Paul was before he became a Christ follower. If God saved Paul, he can save that person too. And so we cannot do this on our own. We are the instruments God has chosen, just like uh, uh, Jesus says he chose Saul here as an instrument in that generation to take the gospel. We're God's instrument in this generation to take the gospel. And so we need to keep praying for the strength of Jesus and his Holy Spirit in us to, to work in us, um, we need to pray for strength to keep loving unlovable people in our life. We need to keep praying for <clears throat> the faithless people we know and for those we know who are putting their faith in the wrong things like we once did and which we are still tempted to do. We need to keep praying for our enemies by the power of God We need to keep pointing our neighbors to Jesus and keep inviting those people to church who keep telling us no. We need to keep pursuing all people, all non-believers especially, including those people who no one would ever imagine would become a follower of Jesus. Because this is what God says. My arm is not too short to save. My arm is not too short to save. One of the most famous <coughs> Jesus freaks during the 1970s was uh, a singer-songwriter named Keith Green. And before trusting in Jesus and following Jesus, Keith had, he was a very talented musician, but he, he really lived a miserable life. He, uh, he kind of rose to fame, made national TV at a very young age, had big hopes and plans of, 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 of you know, everyone was saying, man, you're going to be the next superstar. And what happened is he it did not work out for him. And by the age of 14, he was devastated. I mean, just a young, I mean, it's like he'd already hit the high point in his life. And so he, start, he ran away from home. And uh, he'd had a Jewish background, but he, he read the New Testament. And at that time, he said, this, this a confusing combination 
that le- of, of thoughts that leaves me unsatisfied, is how he described the New Testament. And he immersed his life with drugs and Eastern mysticism and all sorts of sexual immorality. He was not a likely candidate for Christianity. But what he found is the things of the world couldn't satisfy him or heal him. And they kept left leaving him empty. And what happened is, eventually, he had a radical, life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. And he was a completely different person. If you've ever seen any YouTube videos or anything of Keith Green, dude, this guy was radical about Jesus. He was sold out, and he went on to be one of the most, he wasn't perfect, but he was crazy about Jesus. And he went on to be one of the most successful and prolific Christian songwriters in our generation. And uh, I was reading, he, he <clears throat> wrote these lyrics in this song called Your Love Broke Through. And it fits this, what we're talking about. He writes, like a foolish dreamer trying to build a highway to the sky, all my hopes would come tumbling down and I never knew just why. Until today, when you pulled away the clouds that hung like curtains on my eyes. Well, I've, seen, I've been blind all these wasted years, and I thought I was so wise. But then you took me by surprise. Like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. I've been lost in a fantasy that blinded me until your love broke through. The love of Jesus broke through to save Keith Green and the Apostle Paul and all of us who trusted in Jesus. And if Jesus can save people like us, then he can most definitely save people we know who are currently apathetic or belligerent towards Jesus and towards Christians. That includes students, teenagers, Athletes at your schools, coworkers, adults where you're at, customers you work with, your relatives, your friends, your neighbors. And we're the ambassadors of Jesus. So let's keep praying for these people and let's use our words to point them to God and to his love. And when appropriate, like Paul did or Saul did here, proving to them that Jesus is God. And do this with prayer and kindness and confidence, because God's hand is not too short to save anybody. Put your confidence in God, not in yourself. Jesus is, is, this is the cool thing, Jesus is still advancing. He's still advancing his kingdom through those of us who believe as we worship together and as we fellowship together and serve together and make more disciples together for the glory of God. That's our purpose as a church. So let's continue to thank God. Let's continue to worship him for intervening in our lives. Let's continue to ask him for help and to pour more grace into us as he shapes us into his image. And may we celebrate that none of us who follow Jesus have a boring testimony because the reality is once we were blind, but now we see. We pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for the way that you broke into Saul's life. We thank you for the way that you transformed his life for your glory. We thank you that you <clears throat> captured this in your scriptures, God, so that even 2,000 years later, we, we read this and our jaws drop to the ground 
And because your word is living and active, your Holy Spirit preaches this truth to us that, wow, Jesus can save whoever he wants. And Jesus is resurrected. And Jesus is in control of everything. And he is omniscient. He does know everything. And he is in heaven. And he is alive. And he wants a relationship with us. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve. Help us as we get started this fall, God, just to celebrate you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us up in a way that makes us abounding in love, that we would treat one another with the same grace you've treated us with. That we would be quick to offer forgiveness and kindness and compassion and patience to one another. We can only do that by your Holy Spirit. So please keep working on us. Please help us. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.